Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the United States. Today is the 24th of August, so you only have four months before Christmas Eve to get all of those great donations and presents to Authentic Biochemistry. So you can start today. Um, what we're going to do is continue on our discussion, of course, with the broadest strokes being involved in aging or senescence. And remember that we're comparing and we're also uh, carrying out a contrarian discussion between the senescent process and tumor genesis to give you a striking dissimilarity between the two, yet where there is crosstalk biochemically. And so uh, that is exactly what we're going to do now. And the reason that I'm doing this, as you, of course, are fully aware, uh, is that I've got nothing better to do. So as a terminus quo, let us recall that T-cell leukemia and lymphomas, uh, as we said before, accounted for between about 10 to 50% of all lymphoid tumors. In most cases characterized, you have an unfavorable prognosis with only about 25% of patients remaining alive with the disease five years after the initial diagnosis. Now you have two different diseases that we can talk about, T-cell lymphomas or T-all, which is T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. I mentioned before that given the import of T-cell receptor signaling in neoplastic T-cells, EOIPSO, the RAS-MAP-K pathway, and its members could elucidate the genomic basis of both TCL and T-all. That's the lymphobastic leukemia, the latter there. With an aberrant activation of the oncogenic RAS signaling transduction cascade, which is usually most commonly observed. Now, we talked about this pharnacid transferase inhibitor, tipifarnib. Uh, and that we said it could be a potential therapeutic, pharmacotherapeutic option in the T-cell leukemia lymphoma pathophysiological family. And we said that was possible given the majority of the lines were sensitive in a, in a paper that we talked about last time, last week, to that virus of transferase inhibitor, about 60% of cell lines were. And it could be, uh, you could get achievable inhibition at concentrations that were relatively low in terms of pharmacodynamics and kinetics, an IC50 of less than even 100 nanomolar. And that could all be um, discovered and, and, and obtained somewhere within four days after treatment. So the other thing we were talking about, this comes from a paper in, Cell, in, in Science Reporter 10, published in 2020, uh, so that's volume 10, page 6721, right? We told you that there was an association between ERK kinase activation and that measuring phospho-ERK expression and tipifarnib sensitivity was of value. So it looked like when you have ERK activation and you measure, therefore, its phosphorylation, you can measure the sensitivities of the financial transfers. Uh, conversely, looking at REL-B upregulation. Don't worry, I'm going to explain all these to you very soon. It probably reflected an activation of what's known as the alternative NF-kappa-B pathway. And if that's true, it must have been associated with the pharnacyl transferase inhibitor, tipifarnib, resistance. 
And that suggests that there's a mutational status of a global transcription factor called Notch1 and the activation of the ERK system, which could possibly serve as a potential biomarker for the ultimate sensitivity of the financial transferase inhibitor. And that means there's a positivity of the RELB as a biomarker for resistance to the drug. And you could, of course, detect that by immunohistocytochemistry. So what does that all suggest? Well, we know that the transcription of pro-inflammatory genes coming from the T-cell pathway can be triggered by this, this NF-kappa-B pathway. So you can start off with tumor necrosis factor alpha or TGF-beta, and uh, they can trigger downstream from those two uh, uh, pro-inflammatory cytokine systems like TNF-alpha, ROS, reactive oxygen, Reactive oxygen then can activate the RELAP50 system, which is also regulated by the androgen and estrogen receptor complexes. Um, the TGF-beta works through MAP kinase, and that can trigger the P50. When you have a dimer of RELA and P50, they, they can act as a transcription factor dimer, and they can turn on the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Now, that same system can also be activated by phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase, AKT, and also by the RAS, RAF, ERK pathway, the one we were just talking about. Now, that's the canonical uh, NF-kappa-B pathway. There's a non-canonical pathway that doesn't work through those intermediates, but rather goes directly from um, an induction of, for example, the androgen receptor uh, or the aromatase receptor or the WIN5A signaling to turn on a RELB P52 transcriptional dimer complex. That will work then uh, in chromatin remodeling to induce the same uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines. So remember before I told you that ERK and RELB seem to be able to be differentiated in that of transfers. Now that's because ERK, while it can trigger the canonical um, NF-kappa-B pathway, it's only one small component. Whereas in the RELB pathway, it's a more, it's a more uh, significant contributor. So that's how you can tease out the RELB pathway from the ERK pathway, because ERK can work both with canonical and non-canonical uh, production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Now, this is also associated, again, with hormones. I'm not going to get into uh, breast cancer right now, but trust me that this pathway has been well examined in uh, androgen receptor and estrogen receptor um, cancers, including prostate cancer and breast cancer. And depending on the relative expression of those two endocrine hormone receptors, you trigger a different response with NF-kappa-B, and that indeed works through either one or two of those canonical, the canonical versus non-canonical pathway. That's very important to understand. So the canonical NF-kappa-B pathway, again, can work through TNF-alpha, and in fact, also interleukin-1, both of those pro-inflammatory cytokines. They will work through the TNF receptor. They'll turn on the um, TAC1, which is a kinase, which is going to phosphorylate the inhibitor of, of the KK gamma pathway. 
So you're going to have IKK alpha and IKK beta both becoming phosphorylated. That will ubiquitinylate the inhibitor pathway and allow for P65 and P50 to bind to its receptor and turn on the NF-kappa-B target gene expression pathway. That's all the part that's more subtlety in the canonical NF-kappa-B pathway. In the non-canonical, we don't do that. We work directly with what's known as the NIC pathway. So the non-canonical pathway is induced by a specific sort of stimuli, such as a lymphotoxin alpha, and it's basically an IKK alpha-dependent cascade. And the activation of that cascade results in the phosphorylation of NIC, another kinase, and that's followed by the phosphorylation of IKK alpha and the subsequent phosphorylation at P100 NF kappa B subunit. That subunit is then processed to a P52, which leads to the activation of the P52 rel B heterodimer, which then carries out that transcription. Okay, so it's just giving you more of a detail. Now, I got that uh, detail from endocrine-related cancer paper, volume 26, published uh, in June of 2019, just last year. So there's a great deal of interaction between NF-kappa-B, REL-A, REL-B, ERK kinase, and estrogen receptor signaling when we're talking about uh, various forms of oncogenic pathways. The one most significant that's been studied, of course, is the breast cancer um, system. So since there appears to be in this T-cell response a link between the ERK or kinase activation and the pharnacil transferase sensitivity, the paper that we had talked about last week focused on the RAS-MAPK pathway I just mentioned and other T-cell leukemia lymphoma related pathways. And those are, of course, canonical T-cell Receptor, the JAK-STAT, the NFAT, NF-kappa-B, which we've been talking about now. All of those are going to be linked to T-cell, directly to T-cell leukemias and lymphomas. And remember, they found that there were some sensitive and some resistant cell lines. They were looking for mutations in RAS genes because those are very common. Indeed, they found that again. And within the RAS guanine nucleotide exchange factors, uh, they found that there were some sensitive and some resistant in terms of mutations and also the RAS GTPase itself, or the GAP protein genes, right? So it appeared that the T-cell receptor pathway and G-protein coupled receptor activity works at the G2M checkpoint. And all that correlated with greater sensitivity to the pharnacil transferase inhibitor. While the NF-kappa-B activation by TNF-alpha, interfering gamma, and alpha response, all that, working with the ribosome with P53 pathway, those were correlated with resistance. So now I'm starting to show you how you can tease out, even by looking at one pharnacil pathway, how there's multiple signaling going on, for example, the TCR pathway versus the canonical and non-canonical NF-kappa-B pathway, which can allow you to separate which of those two pathways are sensitive to pharnacil transfers. Now, why is all this important? Because I told you that pharnacillation of proteins can be responsible for controlling either T-cell proliferation, such as in leukemias and lymphomas, 
or T cell activation, thus triggering uh, the initial phases of a, 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 an anti-oncogenic event. I also told you though, this was like three lectures ago, that these same pharmaceutical transferases only in different tissue systems, such as the central nervous system now we're talking, can actually be responsible, it, it, the, the, the induction of those in uh, microglia can be responsible for neurodegeneration, which is associated with a very important age-related disease. Uh, that's Alzheimer's disease, right? So you get the idea why I bring all this in. Aging and cancer relative to the subcellular association of these signaling pathways dealing with T-cell receptors, when you're talking about T-cells being associated with uh, controlling cancer or itself the T-cell receptor causing a cancer of the T-cells of the themselves, of leukemias and lymphomas, how the pharmaceutical transferase still is a major trigger there because it's an activating system. Okay, and I told you that that's also associated just now with a major um, disease sequelae in aging, which of course is Alzheimer's. And I can tell you right now, it's very similar in Parkinson's although we haven't gone into that specific literature yet. So I've been detailing how post-translational protein crenelation and the prenal transferase inhibitors can be therapeutic for, for, as I said before, oncogenesis and metastasis. I also told you that within the scientific literature, you can see how protein crenelation um, is becoming more and more significant in cancer research and in aging research. And not only in cancer and aging, but prenylation also seems to be associated with cardiovascular disease um, and autoimmune disorders, uh, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and indeed, because it works with T-cell receptors and, both, and the interaction between the innate and the acquired immune response, infection and inflammation. I also said besides glioblastoma, and general neurodegeneration, yeah, it's cancer versus Alzheimer's, for example, that both of those, because both can be occurring in the central nervous system, are associated with protein prenylation, right? Particularly the pharmacylation or the, or the gerinogerinylation, right? So that's why, that's why I'm, I'm spending so much time on this. Now, I, then I went on, I talked to you about sterile receptors and sterile receptor binding proteins. I, I went through that whole pathway with you and how those are necessary for the regulation of the pharmaceutical transferase pathway. Remember, I told you that you needed a sterile response element binding protein 2 to turn on the, the MBA pathway, and you need a response element 1C to turn on fatty acid synthesis. And both of those were necessary to trigger a response, right? Uh, that's because both of them are working on um, preparing for cell division, right? And I told you about lipogenic program is necessary for activated T cells, right? And the pharmaceutical pyrophosphate synthase is one of the genes that's turned on. And then the several of the enzymes downstream from that initial pathway, all the way down the squalene synthesis are also regulated in T cells by a co-stimulatory system starting with the glycoprotein 100. Right? Remember that, and that was all that was all linked to that still response element binding protein. I know I'm going fast because I want to get to now 
about cholesterol essentiality, okay? This is the key feature here. Cholesterol is indeed an essential component of membranes, and that's because it maintains a selective permeability and microfluidity, particularly in the plasma membrane in mammals. Of course, cholesterol is also associated with lipid rafts, which again are those specialized microdomains of membranes uh, that are used for the assembly of signaling molecules and for the aggregation of assembly molecules to reach the appropriate um, KM of those receptors so that you get reception of a ligand. Right? And I also told you that ceramide played a role in that lipid raft mobilization through the endosomes, for example. So there's a requirement for cholesterol availability and cell proliferation and in cell cycle progression, and that's been well established. Now we're starting to understand it's not just the cholesterol in the membrane or, or whatever can be synthesized from the cholesterol in the membrane, such as hormones, right, that we were just talking about there, such as the estrogen and testosterone pathways and the cancers associated with that, but the intermediates along the mevalonic acid pathway leading to the cholesterol genesis, right? All linked to cell cycle, all linked to either senescence or on the other end of the spectrum, tumor genesis. Now I'm gonna tell you that oxysterols can act as a feedback regulator. Okay, now we've talked a lot about oxysterols in the past when we were doing fatty acid metabolism and lipid metabolism. We're talking about lipoproteins, we're talking about diabetes and obesity, right? If you wanna go back and look at those earlier lectures, they were both on the, um, Authentic Biochemistry podcast feed, as well as my Verev Matt Authentic Biochemistry um, videos, right, on YouTube. So that all has occurred in 2020, so you don't have to go back too far. Remember, I've been doing this now for a couple of years. So let's talk about oxysterols. So the accumulation of a 22-hydroxycholesterol. Now, that's an oxysterol derivative, and it results in the activation of the LXRB. Remember, that's an initial phase of T-cell induction. It's involved in the suppression of mitogen and antigen-dependent proliferation. Okay, so here you have an oxysterol feedback-regulating T-cell activation through the all-important LXRB initial signaling pathway. So LXRB is thought to promote the localized depletion of sterol. And it does so by activating a cholesterol efflux transporter, which is essentially an ATP binding cassette subfamily G, G uh, protein family member. It's called ABCG1. Now, conversely, the absence of that LXRB activity could potentiate the homeostatic and indeed vaccine-dependent proliferation of T-cells. T-cells are associated with some vaccinations, for example, to viruses. So a decrease in oxysterol will or could very well promote sterol accumulation against that feedback mechanism I just told you about, inhibiting that whole pathway, that MBA pathway. And therefore, it could be associated with controlling T-cell activation. So high amounts of oxysterols in macrophages, probably also microglia, 
can result in foam cell accumulation in the vascular epithelia and lead ultimately to various kinds of diseases, depending on where you are. In the brain, it could lead to perhaps neurodegeneration. And, and for example, the cardio system could result in cardiovascular disease. Therefore, a depletion of these oxysterols, like the 22R hydroxycholesterol, while potentially cardioprotective, I just told you that's what it is, it could actually lead to T-cell hyperactivation, right? Because you're removing the inhibition of the pharnaceal pathway. You want to look at it that way. Pharnaceal pathway meaning the MBA pathway, okay? And so if you get rid of the oxysterols that could be cardioprotective, at the same time, it could be TCL hyperactivating. And that can lead to chronic inflammation. And indeed, what else? Autoimmune diseases or systems such as leukemia and lymphoma. Oh, yes. All that link to that pharmaceutical transfers pathway. Okay. Now, statins would decrease oxysterol accumulation and could thus, now catch this, mitigate T-cell-mediated chronic inflammation. So while statins could improve cardiovascular health, they may promote some aspects of central nervous system disorders, autoimmune diseases, all of which have been associated with the aging process. So statins are important in understanding where they sit at that axis of potentially being pathogenic but would not be easily detected until much later in life and would not even be linked to it. You get the point. So there's another class of transcription factors we talked about, and we, and we already mentioned those are the SREBPs. I'm not going to get back into them. I just wanted you to remember that that's something very important besides all the other systems we've been talking about. I did mention, though, that T-cell differentiation is regulated course, by these sterile response element binding proteins, okay? For example, the SREBP signaling is required for CD8-positive T-cells to acquire that glycolytic phenotype, and that allows CD8-positive cells to become what? Full effector functional, yep. So the intracellular cholesterol pool serves as a metabolic checkpoint, in this case, for the development of the effector T-cells. Could be consistent, this whole... Um, uh, pool of information as evidence could be consistent with the previous observations in the scientific literature that cholesterol abundance is increased in gamma delta T cells compared to that to all the alpha beta T cells, which are the CD4, CD8, right? Either double positive or, or single positive, ultimately leading to the TL, TH lineage and to the TC lineage of all those effector cells, okay? <laughs> Furthermore, this concept may even apply to regulatory T cells, and we've talked about this. So those also appear to require sufficient metabolic flux through the MVA pathway, presumably because of the production of pharnaceal pyrophosphate and geronyl, and therefore geronyl pyrophosphate. Like inhibiting mevalonic acid metabolism in wild-type Tregs, naive Tregs, with a statin, which is inhibits G-coy reductase, so that's inhibiting mevalonic acid metabolism at, the, at the, almost the beginning of the pathway. When you do that, you block the suppressive activity, and that effect 
is then completely reversed by the addition of mevalonic acid. And that's the metabolite, which of course we know is downstream from the pathway leading from the enzyme that's inhibited by the statin h g coy reductase, with h g coy synthase being um, immediately prior to that enzyme. So statins, therefore, eliminate T-cell regulation as imposed by Treg suppression of the T-helper cell response. This has been shown again and again and again. Again, not looking for this, not looking for this as what statins are doing, but using statins to understand lymphoid cell differentiation and particularly T lymphocyte differentiation into the various uh, subclasses. So this is critical for you to get this because aging then is a system which is always intimately linked to the potential induction of tumorigenesis. That's ultimately why I've been telling you this all along, okay? I want you to understand that there is a, a seesaw effect here. So, and, and it depends on which tissue bed and which cells are proliferating, whether or not you get an oncogenic response or you get a neurodegeneration response, for example, in the central nervous system, okay? So next time around, I'm going to start talking to you. Uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time, I think, discussing these um, common helper-like innate lymphoid cells, because this will give you a, a further in-depth understanding of how these ILC systems um, allow you to see the contrasting contrarian response of tumorigenesis associated with the mevalonic acid pathway, that contrary, contrarian system to the system of senescence or aging. Okay. So I'm going to leave you with that because I know it's a lot of things to uh, absorb in, uh, in one 25-minute, uh, 30-minute uh, lecture. But I wanted to get all that in, into this lecture because I want to be able to move on from here and get back into classical description of aging. But this is all a prolegomena so that you understand that aging is a phenomenon that is constantly held in check or holds in check, depending on how you look at it, what the parallax is to tumorigenesis and cancer. And any dysregulation of one or the other could lead to a more florid response um, in the contrarian system that is aging versus tumorigenesis. So I'm going to stop with that right now. I'll leave you with that really wonderful um, mindset. And we're going to go on from there soon. So I'm just going to say this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry on the 24th of August, 2020, saying bye for now.